This podcast series is based on the book Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea, by Wayne Visser and Clem Sunter, narrated by myself, Wayne Visser. Chapter 3, Conquest, The Legacy of the Lion, The Monarch on the Throne. The lion as an inspirational role model is neither new nor unique to business. Lions have won a place of respect and admiration in the imagination of humanity ever since we first encountered them. Their regal beauty, awesome strength, terrifying ferocity, efficiency as hunters, and envied position at the top of the food chain have made them widespread icons for our own conquests and aspirations. Witness how many royal crests and emblems proudly display the lion as the symbol of their strength and courage, and how many kings have adopted Leo as their name. Take Richard I, King of England from 1189 to 1199, who spent most of his reign abroad fighting wars or as a prisoner. He became a hero with the public and was popularly known as Richard the Lionheart. The lion as king also features prominently in the myths, legends, rituals and traditions of many of the ancient cultures of the world, from Europe to the east of Africa. In South Africa, the different words for lion, ingonyama, ibubesi or shumba, tell us that it is the master of all flesh, one who makes the final decision and the royal beast. Beyond its connotations of leadership and power, the lion is also an archetype for the popular survival of the fittest maxim, the idea that nature is a competitive eat-or-be-eaten world ruled by the law of tooth and claw. Each creature has its place in the great food chain and will sooner or later be consumed by a predator higher up the chain, except for the supreme predators like the lion. Over the past few hundred years, this jungle metaphor probably seemed quite appropriate to acquisitive rulers of the colonial empires. No less so for the people whose lives were dominated by the supreme rule of monarchs or dictators, and who were resigned to fighting wars and the daily struggle for basic survival. More recently, the metaphor was found to apply with equal comfort in the increasingly competitive markets of the business world. As military jargon crept into the boardroom, strategy, tactics, targets, and so on, so did the persona of the predator. After all, business seems to mirror the hunting instinct in so many ways. Competitors are chasing the same food, be they customers, new products, good talent, information, new markets, or investors' capital. And in a cutthroat environment of starvation, or bankruptcy, and consumption, take over of somebody else's market. In this deadly game, it is seen as not only acceptable, but essential to be selfish, ruthless, and focused only on the prey. After all, those that are not hunting are soon likely to end up as someone else's lunch. This view of the world is widely accepted in business, whether consciously or subconsciously. Its essence is found in a slight adaptation of a biblical quote, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, but not the mineral rights. A recent article in The Spectator by Frank Johnson had the title Napoleon and Hitler would have been hopeless at business, 
So why is business obsessed with war? It seems from the article that loads of executives had read Sun Tzu's Art of War from 500 BC. Equally, everywhere you go in the office, you will run across corporate aspirations to display lion-like characteristics. The company pep talks and motivational seminars all have the telltale language. Be agile, lean and mean, learn to hunt in packs, take down the opposition, get wind of what the competitors are doing, select your target market, keep your customers in sight, chase down business opportunities, go for the kill in the sales pitch. Jack Welsh of General Electric is probably the most popular and revered CEO of all time. He sounds just like a five-star U.S. general when he tells his life story from the gut. One excerpt from his autobiography goes, and I quote, In those days, I was throwing hand grenades, trying to blow up traditions and rituals that I felt held us back, end quote. His most famous dictum was that each of his divisions should be number one or number two in its respective market. Otherwise, it should be fixed, sold, or closed. Period. Such abrupt advice may have been fairly appropriate when the role of business was unambiguous, to make profits for the company's managers, owners, and other shareholders. The consensus philosophy was to feed the pride and let everyone else fend for themselves. But the role of business is changing, and the hunting lifestyle is proving to have a number of weaknesses in the new landscape of sustainability. The modern capitalist company, while it continues to portray itself as a lion king, has a number of blind spots with reference to sustainability. These fatal flaws, or false assumptions, that are beginning to challenge the supremacy of this kind of regal thinking, are briefly discussed as follows. Before moving on, however, we must stress one thing. Our comments are in no way pertaining to that splendid institution called the Lions Club, which, like Rotary and others, does magnificent social work. Indeed, these lions are just exemplary elephants, using an alias to conceal their good deeds. Master and Servant Some say eat or be eaten, some say live and let live. But all are agreed as we join the stampede, you should never take more than you need in the circle of life. These lyrics by Tim Rice from the soundtrack of Disney's animated film The Lion King hit the nail on the head. Indeed, if a lion knows its place in the greater scheme of things, all is well. But when the lion's arrogance deludes him into thinking that he is better than other animals... His needs are more important, and he can rule over his subjects like a dictator wielding pure brute force and fear. The circle of life is broken. This latter scenario is, sadly, a fitting metaphor for modern business, as the nations and populations of the world have become increasingly tied into the capitalist economy, they have also become more dependent on its main agents, business. Business in turn has grown in size and power until today it is the most influential organization in our global society. This might have been all well and good if business acted like Mufasa, the wise lion ruler in The Lion King. Unfortunately, however, many companies are more like his ambitious brother, Scar, whose dangerous combination of power and lack of accountability turned his once lush kingdom into a desolate wasteland 
echoing the haunting cackle of hyenas. People in business may think this analogy is rather unfair and dramatic, and to some extent they may be right. The highly irresponsible, scar-like companies are perhaps few and far between. But if we examine the underlying pattern of thinking in business, there is a more subtle and insidious tendency at work. Companies constantly shrug off their social and environmental impacts because their economic contribution and financial profit are seen as more important. In fact, the latter are seen as an end in itself. Companies are quick to point out how many jobs they create, what foreign exchange they earn through exports, and how their continued success will trickle down to benefit everyone. Their beguiling argument, therefore, is that by enriching themselves, the whole kingdom is better off. There is no shortage of examples of this biased rationale. Pharmaceutical companies are allowed to price life-saving drugs well beyond the reach of the average sufferer in the third world. The justification, well, they need to recover their research and development costs. Oil and energy companies refuse to give up smoking, uh, their emissions, because the upgrade of their polluting processes would damage their profits and hurt the economy. Hence, they continue to exacerbate global climate change and the health of the communities around their operations. Logging companies clear-cut vast tracts of indigenous forest, emphasizing the contribution of their sales to exports. Meanwhile, the world is losing irreplaceable carbon sinks and reservoirs of biodiversity. The list goes on and on, each flawed decision accompanied by a plausible excuse. Fishing companies systematically deplete the fishing stocks of the oceans, but justify their actions in terms of contributing to the food supply and creating jobs, albeit short-term jobs. Mining companies intrude on ecologically sensitive sites, but are allowed to continue because their operations boost the economies of marginalized communities or nations. At the end of the mine's life, they are seldom asked to make up for the social impacts that result from their withdrawal. Farmers are permitted or even encouraged to use chemical fertilizers and pesticides to improve annual yields, despite steadily rising contamination in the natural water system. Sometimes governments and other worthy institutions actively assist in the perpetration of these unsavory practices. For instance, the authorities might turn a blind eye to the effects of pollution on local communities because the industrial companies concerned pay significant rates and taxes. Arms companies are encouraged to export military equipment to support regional wars in distant lands because it will bring in foreign exchange. Local communities are incentivized to convert tropical rainforests into cash crops because this will help the country to meet its debt-linked structural adjustment conditions imposed by the World Bank or International Monetary Fund. Obviously, we are simplifying the situation and there are world-class companies who are notable exceptions. For example, Boehringer Ingelheim has made an offer to the developing world to supply free nevirapine for five years to stop mother-to-child HIV transmission. BP and BMW in South Africa and Deb Swana, the diamond mining giant in Botswana, have all set up HIV treatment programs which include antiretroviral therapy for their HIV-positive employees and some or all of their families. Despite their profitability, Levi Strauss withdrew its operations from China 
so that it was not tacitly supporting the poor human rights track record of that country. And on the environmental front, Swedish furniture manufacturer IKEA supplied low-energy light bulbs for free to the Swedish population in a campaign to improve environmental awareness and energy efficiency. These are examples of companies taking decisions that did not make short-term economic sense, but were in the interests of sustainability and long-term financial profitability. For the majority of companies, however, the belief pattern is clear. Business has become used to viewing its economic contribution, be that profits, foreign exchange, earnings or jobs, as a justifiable end in its own right, irrespective of what social or environmental side effects it might cause in pursuit of this definition of success. The tragedy is that our current political and economic system perpetrates this back-to-front power relationship and makes it virtually impossible for governments, civil society or business itself to reverse the roles. This is akin to the lion believing that other species and the environment exist purely for its own gratification, which is neither true nor sustainable. An insatiable appetite. This fatal flaw deals with businesses' unsustainable exploitation of the environment. All companies rely on natural resources and nature's processes to some extent, whether as a source of raw materials a factor of production, or a sink for its wastes. However, business has been extracting resources and impacting the environment at a rate and a scale that could only be sustainable if the planet was infinite and contained ecosystems that were able to regenerate themselves rapidly, irrespective of the damage they incurred, which of course is not the case. A few statistics illustrate the point. The fossil record indicates that Earth has experienced five mass extinctions of species in the last 500 million years. In each case, at least half of the species in existence at the time were wiped out. Furthermore, after each extinction, it took between 10 million and 100 million years to recover former levels of biological diversity. Sometime in the past 1,000 years, and probably just in the last 100 years, the biodiversity of species on Earth once again began to decline, this time caused by human degradation and destruction of natural habitats. We are precipitating what could rapidly become the sixth mass extinction. According to the landmark scientific book, A Walk Through Time from Stardust to Us, The Evolution of Life on Earth, we are losing an estimated three or more species an hour a rate 100 to 1,000 times greater than the average over the preceding hundreds of millennia, and the trend is still accelerating. We've lost over 10% of the species that were living a few hundred years ago. Conservation biologists are predicting that half of the biodiversity of life will be lost in the next century if the present rates of habitat destruction and disturbance continue. In the last 50 years, according to the World Resources Institute, we have already lost, destroyed or seriously depleted two-thirds of the world's agricultural land, half of the freshwater wetlands, mangroves, swamps and rivers, a quarter of the marine fish stocks and one-fifth of the forests. Perhaps this is not surprising when one considers the fact that since 1980 the global economy has tripled in size and is expected to expand by a factor of five in the next 50 years, 
while the population has continued to grow to over 7 billion today and is expected to reach 9 or 10 billion by 2050, or that the world's energy consumption has risen rapidly in the past few decades and average annual anthropogenic carbon emissions which were less than 2 billion tons between 1850 and 1950, has rocketed to 7.1 billion tons during the 1980s and is expected to soar further to unexpected 9.8 billion tons by 2020. You do not have to be a genius to see that this trend is not sustainable, and yet most companies are still gearing up to continue their expansion which will require additional exploitation of the environment and its resources. At most, an environmental impact assessment gets carried out, a few mitigation measures are recommended, and the project goes ahead, irrespective of any damages. The problem, it seems, is that we do not have any mechanism to track and give feedback on collective and cumulative impacts. Each extra ton of pollution or waste may be relatively insignificant on its own, but it all adds up. How else are species lost, if not through square meter by square meter of habitat encroachment? How else are communities disempowered, if not by job by job loss? Companies and governments that regulate them do not seem to have either the will or the mechanism to say no to new developments that deplete or harm the environment. No lion entertains the misguided belief that it has an unlimited food supply, so why do we 